We're going through the book of Joel for the next few weeks in an attempt to discuss and share with uh, you the reality of living in what we call the last days, living in the last days. I'm hoping that we're going to continue this later on with uh, a look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter also talked about living in the last days. A lot of uh, folks think the last days are just the very last days, right before Jesus comes. But the apostolic teaching of the New Testament is that the last days began when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that those last days are going to continue until He returns. And that during those last days, there are going to be cycles of good and bad and evil and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all of those things are going to be continuing. There will be a continual circular repetition, if you will, of good and evil. They're going to exist side by side. And that the church is to continue living as salt and light during those last days right up until the time of Jesus coming with anticipating every moment of those last days as if He were coming in the next 60 seconds and at the same time believing it might be a million years. That's the tension that Christians are to live in. We're to live in that tension of believing that Jesus may come at any moment, but at the same time it could be a a million years. So we're to invest deeply in our world, in the beauty of our world, in our environment, in our culture. At the same time, we're not to hold so tightly to it that it becomes the means of enslaving us. And it's not an easy task sometimes. It can be difficult. But Joel and First Peter both uh, show us the way. So if you have uh, your Bible or the insert, uh, follow along as we begin reading in the second chapter. And I'll read the first 17 verses here. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Though the years of all the generations, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them people are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes 
Before them the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army, for His camp is exceedingly great. For He who executes His word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? This is the word of the Lord. We often think of prophets, as I told you last week, when you think of a prophet, you think of someone who is foretelling the future. But if you read carefully the New Testament, or the Old Testament, pardon me, the Old Testament prophets were not these mystics who just simply foretold future events. In fact, the vast majority of time, these prophets in the Old Testament were describing events that were either ongoing or were imminent. In other words, you could see what was happening in front of you. It was almost there. There was an army outside the city and the prophet would come out and say, look, an army's coming and here's what it means. In this case, the prophet Joel either sees the plague of locusts coming or is in the midst of the plague of locusts or perhaps the plague of locusts has already destroyed the land and now the prophet comes and he explains it. And that's the majority of what the prophets in the Old Testament do. They explain events. They don't foretell only future events. There's only a few places where they actually literally are foretelling future events that have no uh, current application. It's very interesting. Joel witnessed this mind-bending catastrophe, this, this flood of locusts into the land that covered the land and destroyed their crops and actually sucked the very life out of not only the land, but the people. In fact, he says the joy of the people evaporated. It went away. All their joy was gone because there was nothing to eat. There were no more uh, uh, grain and uh, offerings, cereal offerings that they could offer on the altar. There was no wine which they could uh, use for the drink offerings. So their, their cultic observance, their worship, their church services were diminished because of the locust plague. Besides that, they were hungry. There was nothing to feed the people. And so consequently, it affected every arena of their life. 
what the cutting locust left from last week, the swarming has eaten what the swarming left, the hopping has eaten what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust. He got the joy of mankind withered. And so the, the country is under extreme judgment and duress. And almost everyone in this room can identify. Now, I've never heard of a plague in our lifetime here in the United States anything to compare like this. And so it's a little hard for us to get our, our heads around it. But each one of you individually and perhaps in your family, you've experienced catastrophes or uh, harsh, dark, what the Puritans used to call these dark providences where things happen in your life you don't know why. Sometimes it's hard to understand. And you just don't know how to interpret it. And Joel tells us how to interpret it. He rouses, one thing he does, is he rouses the people out of their idolatrous stupor. We talked about this last week. He says, wake up, you drunkards. Weep and wail. You see, he's not talking about just alcoholic uh, uh, stupor. He's talking about a mindset of just being... uh, insensitive to what's going around you, to be, to be living kind of blind to the realities around you. And folks, there has never been a country or a culture that is more in a drunken stupor than the United States of America. Never have a people been so intoxicated with luxury and food and abundance to the point that we are so self-sufficient that our country has wholesale abandoned any belief in any God and is putting all of its hopes on Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And if you don't believe that judgment is coming, you know what, frankly, I don't care who gets elected because both of them are going to be a severe and horrific judgment on this country. The next four years are going to be ugly no matter what. Nobody's going to say amen, are you? Bunch of of chickens. (laughs) It is not going to be a pretty picture. And I'll tell you what, we're getting exactly what we deserve. Because we've shaken our fist at God over and over again. And the place that it started, folks, was the church. In the church. There is more faithlessness in the Christian church today than ever in the history of mankind. We have no room to point our fingers back to the pre-Reformation days and say, look at the medieval church, how awful it was. The church in the West today is completely apostate. And if you don't believe it, all you have to do is turn on your television and watch late night TV or listen to what's going on in our mainline denominations or look at the struggles even in some faithful places that we're having to do what is right in God's sight. Can you say amen to that? So judgment begins at the household of God. And I'm not going to shirk my responsibility as your pastor to tell you that we've got some serious business we've got to do. And if it starts with just this little church on the west side and just this little group of people, if we can be faithful, we can be salt and light to our world. Yes? And I'm going to do all that I can. And I know that our elders and our deacons are committed to that. And I know that most of you are as well. He rouses the people of God, not the the idolatrous world out there. He rouses God's people out of their idolatrous stupor and He calls them to repentance. 
Summon the elders, he said. Bring the whole household of Israel. Come to my house, to the temple. And cry out to the Lord. You see, ultimately the plague was simply a sign. It was pointing to what Joel calls this great day of the Lord. This day of great and dreadful darkness. And the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 describes what that great day of darkness was. He said it happened. And we are here on the day of Pentecost. He says we're here to witness these signs that you're seeing are the signs of that great day. He made it contemporary to them. The great day of judgment was going to come. Another one would come, but one fulfillment of it had already happened and it happened at the cross. It happened on the day that darkness fell on the earth and Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified and died for sinners like you and me, took our place. And great judgment fell. And Peter said, this is what this means, this outpouring of Holy Spirit. And Joel, in verse 15 of chapter 1, says, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near. Destruction from the Almighty, it comes. The day of the Lord, he says in 2, we just read it in verse 11, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You see, when God's hand comes down, who can endure it? No one can endure it. And judgment has a purpose. And we're going to look at that today in some detail. I'll go through it quickly, but I hope you'll listen. Because if you will listen to this, the response of a repentant heart is brokenness. True, real brokenness. And if you can grasp this and get this down into your heart and let it become part of the fabric of your being, what it means to truly be broken, I'm going to say this. It will, I don't want to overpromise, but if you can really embrace true brokenness and repentance, it will revolutionize your marriage. It'll revolutionize the relationship with your children. It'll revolutionize your job. It'll revolutionize the way you look at politics. It'll change the way you look at your culture. It will completely modify your soul from the inside out. The very thing that we all crave and desire is transformation from the inside out. We hate beating on things from the outside in. We want to see something coming up from the inside. And I'm telling you the secret is a broken heart. And Joel puts his finger right on it in this chapter. What is brokenness? We're going to look at three things this morning very quickly. We're going to look at brokenness, the brokenness, uh, the broken heart, a broken community, and finally, the broken heart of God. First of all, let's look at uh, the broken heart. Look at verses 12 through 14. In the midst of this horrific judgment of this locust plague, God says something. These are some of the most beautiful words that you will read in your Bible, in the whole Bible. He calls out to a rebellious and stiff-necked people like us, hard-hearted. And He calls out to them and He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart. Or another translation would be with your whole or entire heart. 
with weeping and fasting and mourning, rend your hearts. He's saying, don't just tear your clothes. Oh God, oh, have mercy and tear your clothes and put on a show outwardly. He says, no, rend your heart. Go inside and tear apart that interior dimension of your soul and let God flood you with grace and mercy. For He is gracious. Now Joel starts quoting God Himself when God described Himself to Moses on the mountain of Sinai. God said this about Himself. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. He uses this famous Hebrew word chesed which means loving kindness, tenderness, faithful, covenant loyalty. In fact, in my Hebrew lexicon that I have at my house, there's 90 pages that describe just this one word chesed. It's so rich and so full. It's an unalterable loyalty and deep love for His people that cannot be changed and cannot be thwarted. And He said, remember, I'm that person. I am loving kindness itself. Who knows whether the Lord will not turn and relent. John Calvin said, I love this quote by Calvin, though men are ever disposed to trifle with God, in other words, we just, you know, we just play around with Him, we don't really take Him serious, though men are ever disposed to trifle with God, bringing nothing but hypocrisy and disguise, yet He graciously meets us and is ready to receive us Unto His favor. Isn't that amazing? That even though we trifle with God, even though we play brinkmanship with Him, and we get up real close, we say, oh, let's see how close I can get to being really bad. And of course, He'll forgive me. We presume upon His, oh, He'll forgive me. He's not going to, He's got to love. That's His job. He's got to forgive me. We presume on His grace. And yet, Calvin says, He still loves us. He still extends the hand of grace. So what is brokenness? Let me give you three things very quickly. Brokenness, first of all, is a response. It's an attitude to suffering, to judgment, to these horrific and catastrophic events that sometimes happen nationally or globally. I mean, look, our world's going off the rails. It's crazy out there. And it's going to get crazier, folks. And sometimes our lives go off the rails. Sometimes it gets crazy in our own personal lives. We don't know which end is up. And our response and our attitude is to repent, not to get mad at God, not to shake our feet. Why are you letting this happen to me? Who knows why He's letting it happen? I don't know. Does it matter? Does He owe you something? Ask yourself that question. Does God owe you something? And if you say, yes, He owes me, we need to have a talk. I have an office back here with a vault. I'm going to lock you in there. What does God owe you, for goodness sakes? What does He owe any human being? Our attitude, our response to Him should be one of broken humility. Broken people do not focus on the fault of others. This is where it can revolutionize your marriage and your life. Broken people don't focus on them. think, oh, look what she did. Well, I'm being mean. I'm angry and I have a right to be because she said this and she said that. Or I have a right to do this and I have a right to burn dinner because he said this and he did that. 
See, a broken person won't focus on the fault. You may address those faults. I'm not saying you just ignore them and give everybody a pass to everything. But it's how you approach it. You approach it with humility and with a broken heart. There's no buts. There's no excuses. You're standing before the face of God and you see yourself in that light. And out of that, you respond to everybody else. It can revolutionize your lives. It can revolutionize who you are. Brokenness is not something you do to yourself, but rather a response to that which in the providence of God He does to you. You see, He will bring circumstances into your life wherein He wants you to break. He wants you to lay it all down and say, I give up. He wants you to give in to Him and stop being stiff-necked and resisting Him. And people that do that find a glory and a beauty in life that is found no other place. They actually find the heart of God because Psalm 51 said He loves the broken and the contrite heart. That's what He's looking for. If you want to know what will enrich my relationship with God, go to Him in complete brokenness and humility. Listen to this. But uh, Marty V and I heard Nancy Lee DeMoss read this back in 1994 at Campus Crusade Conference, Summer Conference up in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. This is amazing. Listen. How do you know if your hearts are proud or broken? How do you know? Here it comes. You get ready to squirm. Proud people focus on the failures of others, have a critical, fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. They can esteem all others better than themselves. Proud people have to prove that they're right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. Proud people are protective of their time, their rights, their reputation. Broken people yield their rights, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give both coat and cloak. Proud people want to be served and to be a success. Broken people desire to serve others and make them a success. Proud people are driven to be recognized. They crave appreciation. They get wounded when others are promoted and they are overlooked. Broken people have a sense of their own unworthiness. They are thrilled at the thought that God would use them at all. And they rejoice when others are lifted up. Proud people are quick to blame others for their problems. So unapproachable and defensive when criticized. Broken people are quick to see where they were wrong and receive criticism with a humble and teachable spirit. Proud people are quick to take offense. Broken people are quick to forgive and overlook offense. Proud people wait for others to come and ask forgiveness when there is a misunderstanding or a conflict in a relationship. Listen, folks. Broken people take the initiative to be reconciled. They race. They race to the cross and see who can get there first. 
no matter how wrong, no matter how wrong the other person may have been. Proud people compare themselves to others and think they're always right, never having anything to repent of. Broken people compare themselves to the holiness of God. They feel a desperate need for their mercy. And they realize they need a continual heart attitude of repentance. Proud people don't think they need revival. But they're certain everyone else does. Broken people continually sense their need for a fresh encounter with God. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, the broken ones, those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt and poverty stricken. You know, a lot of people, folks, are going around calling themselves Christian. And you can call yourself a Christian all day long until the cows come home or until Jesus returns. And you're still going to be a goat and not a sheep. Sheep are broken people. They are people that have encountered the presence of God and the rich mercy that He has extended to them. And it reorients and readjusts their entire interior dimension to where they can no longer look at anything the same way. And it's an ongoing process. It will be broken over and over and over. Pride will come back. I've had pride come back in my life Uh, as early as uh, 9 o'clock this morning. And I have to to reintroduce myself to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, put myself before God's face, realize who He really is and who I really am. And when that encounter happens, you will be broken. Put yourself in that position. Brokenness is a response Secondly, quickly, brokenness is not, listen carefully now, it is not morbid introspection. It's not self-hatred. I'm not telling you to go from here and beat yourself. I'm the most unworthy. I'm a dog. I'm a worm. I'm this. I'm that. That is nothing more than pride. When your focus is completely on how bad you are, that's nothing more than another form of pride. So brokenness is not morbid introspection. It is a real, true look inside. Like I told you last week, Robert Murray McShane, one of my favorite quotes, for every look you take at yourself or your sin, take a look at Jesus. For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Ten at Him. That's the ratio. Concerning with all your heart, here's what John Calvin said. This is another one. You've you, you got to love Calvin. You know, a lot of people have a, a weird idea of what John Calvin was like. He was a pastor. He's very tender-hearted, a very loving man. I don't know why we get these caricatures, but nevertheless, Calvin said this. This is what God means by the whole heart. Not, listen folks, not that perfect repentance can be formed in men, but that the whole or complete heart is as opposed to a divided heart. Now listen, he's going to describe what a divided heart is. This fits all of us, by the way, but you're supposed to address the divided heart. Listen what he says, a divided heart. They divide their heart when they bestow some portion, some little piece, I'll throw God a bone. I'll give God this little part of my life. 
They bestow some portion on God, thinking he is satisfied. And in the meantime, there remains an interior hidden perverseness which separates them from God. In other words, what Calvin is saying is, God is not deceived by our giving him those little portions. and saying, I'll give you this much. You know what he wants? How much does he want? Starts with an A and ends with a double L. What does he want? He wants all of you. In fact, it's all or nothing. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not good news in that respect. He doesn't want some part of you. He wants all of you. And if you're not willing to give all of you, then don't bother. Because he sees through it and he knows exactly what you're up to. So don't bother. But it's also good news, folks, because when you give all, what do you think you get in return? Say all. All. You get all in return. You give him all, you get all. And it's an answer. Very uneven exchange. I give him all my junk. And what do I get? I get his son. The most beautiful, the most precious, the most glorious thing ever to exist in all of creation. He gives me that, his son, and everything else besides. Now folks, what kind of an exchange is that? That's amazing grace. That's why we call it amazing. Brokenness is not morbid introspection. Finally, the third one, brokenness does not presume. Look what he says. Brokenness never presumes on God. Verse 14, he says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Now look, I have given my life to the study of theology. I have a master's degree in divinity. You all should be Extremely impressed. I love studying theology. I have books of systematic theology. And I can tell you one thing. God is immutable. He never changes, right? You all know that. And yet Joel and David and others, I could go on and on and on, all of these great men who knew theology better than I do and better than any of you do, all of them knew when it was time to back up into their humanity and say, who knows what God will do? Meyodea. In fact, in Hebrew, it's Meyodea. Who knows what He'll do? Who knows what He'll do? Maybe He'll change His mind. Now, they knew He wouldn't change His mind. They understood immutability as well as you do, as well as I do. But they also knew their humanity and they also knew the, the greatness of God and the magnitude of God and they, the incomprehensibility of God. And so they would back up into their humanity and say, who knows what he'll do? I'm going to just be a child. I'm going to fall on my face and ask for mercy. Amazing. Amazing. I want to be that person. May you dare. Who knows what God will do? Maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll relent. And in fact, he does relent. Again, John Calvin, do not delay. This is the guy that defines sovereignty, by the way, right? Listen, do not delay, for the Lord may close the door. And repentance may be too late. Now, do you think John Calvin didn't understand sovereignty? He did. And yet he had the understanding of Meyodea, who knows what God will do. Better repent. Better break your heart. Better let yourself in. Who knows? Maybe too late. Maybe too late. 
Secondly, a broken community. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but in verses 15 through 17, he calls the entire nation to come and repent. One of the reasons, folks, why in our liturgy, and we use a very simple liturgy, but our liturgy contains every week before the Lord's Supper a corporate confession of sin. Why do you think we have a corporate confession of sin? Because sin is never done in isolation, is it? When I sin, even if I sin in private and none of you ever know, it affects you. Do you realize that? Even if we sin in private and no one ever knows, it still affects you. Why? It's because we're connected. If it affects me, it's going to degrade me in some way. And that sin is then going to filter its way out into the community around me. We are connected. Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, rejoice with them who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Hebrews chapter 13, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in one body. This is so difficult for us in Western, in America, because we're so committed to this idea of individual rights. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our Constitution is a wonderful document, but it did not descend on a cloud from heaven. It has flaws in it. Now, I know some of you would like to pick up stones and stone me, but the Constitution in the United States is just... A man-made document. It's a wonderful document. It has wonderful things in it. But we are not strictly to serve ourselves at everyone else's expense. There is a place, in, especially as Christians, where we are to give up everything for someone else. Yes? Where we are to sacrifice our very life if necessary for the betterment of the community and never to think of ourselves in isolation as if what we do does not affect everyone else because it does. And therefore, he's calling for brokenness in the community. And finally, just because we're out of time, let me get to the broken heart of God. This is in verse 17. Joel urges this prayer he urges this prayer, and it, it's to come on the mouth from the mouth of the ministers, the priests. They are to pray this prayer. But the people are gathered together now. Imagine this. They spent days, who knows, maybe weeks gathering all the people to the temple in Jerusalem. And then the priests offer this prayer, and the people are praying along with the priests like we do here at our church. And the priests say this, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. In other words, don't let these locusts destroy our country. What will the other nations say if you don't protect us? If you don't protect us, the other nations, it'll be a reproach. You see, it'll be a shame. So we want you to protect us so that the other nations, your reputation, we don't want your reputation to be affected. 
Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the nations, among the peoples, why should they say, where is your God? You see, the nations would compete who had the better God, who had the stronger God. So when a, when a country was under a plague of locusts, like Israel was at that time, why, the Philistines over here, or the Assyrians over there, the Babylonians over there, look at their, where's their God? They must have a weak God. We have the strong gods over here. We don't have a plague of locusts over here. And so there was this constant competition. And the Hebrew prophets understood this. And more than once, they call upon God and they say this amazing thing. Your reputation is at stake, Lord. Save us. Otherwise, it's going to look bad for you. Now that takes some chutzpah, yes? You've got to save us. You've got to do something about this. Otherwise, what's, what the nations are going to say? Are you going to let there be a reproach? How does God ultimately answer the dilemma of their salvation, spare your people, and His reputation? Where is their God? How does He do that? How does He do that in a way so that for you, here today on Sunday morning, and listening to me and saying, is Chuck really right about this brokenness stuff? Can I really risk being broken? If, I be bro- if I'm really broken, people might take advantage of me. If I'm really broken, I may not get my way. If I'm really broken, I may not achieve all of my great and grandiose goals. How can I risk it? How can I take a chance? I'll tell you how. Because Jesus Christ said this on the cross. It's not recorded in the New Testament. It's recorded in the Old Testament in Psalm 69. A messianic psalm of the cries of the Messiah as he was plunged into darkness and unto death. He cried out, you know my reproach. You know my shame. You know my dishonor. My foes are all well known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high, and I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Do you see that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our reproach, took our shame, took our guilt and our sin. It was nailed to with Him on the cross so that when He died, we died so that you and I in the 21st century facing a very difficult world as we live in the last days, we do not have to be afraid to be humble, to be broken, to give way, to let people ahead of us, to extend grace even in the most difficult of circumstances, to be truly salt and light to the world. We have nothing to fear Because He took our reproach and our shame. He drank vinegar so that you could drink this sparkling 
wine of the Lord's Supper. He was hungry and thirsty and broken so that we could be fed and so that your brokenness, really, your humility could matter and have an effect on the world around you. Folks, our world, our country, the United States, is desperate for this kind of Christianity. They're tired of the uh, uh, namby-pamby, name-it-and-claim-it prosperity, driving around in Rolls Royces and and flying around in Gulfstream 3s kind of preachers. This kind of prosperity and this arrogance that is going on in our country today is unacceptable. And I'm calling on you as a little band of brothers and sisters to be broken before God and let humility, let our weakness be our strength. And true humility will revolutionize this world. People will notice, they'll finally start to ask. You know, right now they're saying there's no difference between the Christians and the pagans. Do you know that? No difference. The pagans have got a placard that says, I hate Donald Trump, and the Christians have got a placard that says, I hate Hillary Clinton. Do you hear what I'm saying? No difference. Let's show them a difference. Will you do it? Will you trust him? Will you allow your heart to be broken before God? I beg you to do it. And you'll be a different kind of person. People will finally start to say, what is the hope that you have in you? I, don't, I can't get over You're different. What's the hope you have in you? And then with gentleness and respect, we can give them the apologia, the answer. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Jesus Christ is our King and our glory and our hope is not in Washington as Gary prayed. As important as all that is, Father, our hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And no matter how desperate this world becomes and no matter how dark things may come in our own country, we have hope in you and in your glory. And in fact, Father, I believe with all my heart that our greatest days are ahead We pray that as the pressure grows on Christians to compromise their faith, that we will not do it, but that we will do it with humility and brokenness and gentleness and respect, loving our enemies and blessing those that curse us. Oh God, give us the strength to do that. This world needs it. We need it. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.